thanks for coming on. How have you been and what have you been up to? Good. No, going really well. Um, I'm currently in Hawaii, which I'm enjoying. The weather's uh, nice over here. So a little bit guilty when I speak to my friends in Melbourne, to be honest. They always say, oh, what's the weather like in Hawaii? And I'm like, well, it's 28 today, 28 tomorrow, 28 the day after, 28 the day after sort of thing. So, no, going well, mate. Going really well. Yeah, no, I'm not going to pretend I'm not jealous. It's rainy and gloomy and a bit wintry out here in Melbourne, <laughs> which is disappointing at the start of spring. But I guess that's what we've got used to. Um, yeah, Hawaii. I mean, take us into that a little bit. Obviously, you've been going there, living there for a while, in and out with your wife, being from there. But how do you find the lifestyle living between, you know, obviously living between Australia and then spending a lot of your time over there? Yeah, so we got married 30 years ago. Tammy's from um, 50 miles uh, south of San Francisco, so near San Jose. So but we bought a place here, obviously going backwards and forth from Australia to US. And you know, it's 10 hours from Australia, five, sort of five and a half from San Jose, which is really good. So, yeah, we're really lucky we bought a house. So we've been spending a lot of time here. We love it. It's Yeah, and as everyone knows, it's been to Hawaii. It's such a easy place to live and easy lifestyle sort of thing so yeah we're sort of settling in here, here now which we're really enjoying and you're yeah, getting a bit more used to the, the Hawaiian lifestyle it's, I must admit it's good to get up in the morning and just whack a pair of shorts and a t-shirt on every day and and then if you go out to dinner you've got a pair of shorts and a t-shirt on as well so you know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of outfit changes when you live in Hawaii yeah it sounds amazing right? it sounds amazing now Obviously, your coaching career was glittered with amazing stories and success, but your playing career as well. Now, tell us, you know, obviously a Fitzroy legend, and that's where you spent most of your time before making the move to the Swans, which we'll touch on in a little bit. But for those who maybe don't know a lot about Fitzroy or maybe know nothing about Fitzroy, obviously having left the league, Nick, can you tell us into what playing for them meant to you and what that jumper kind of represented? Yeah, so for those that probably didn't know too much about the old um, VFL, we had a 12-team competition was basically built around those 12 suburban teams and also the um, the zoning. So I was I lived out in Donbale, you know, so we got you got zoned to a certain team. So I was actually a Carlton supporter as a kid. But you know if you yeah, you know if you're you're relatively good, you know, you're gonna get invited to that team that you live in. So I knew that if I was good enough I'd get to Fitzroy. So you always take a bit of an interest. They also have development coaches that used to come out that were Fitzroy players. So you sort of got a bit connected to them through some of the clinics they did at you know, Donville Primary School, Donville High School, things like that. Um, so then eventually I got invited down, probably the first time was they have a city country match, which I think was about under 16. So our country area was a good area as well. Warnerball, Colac, Camperdown, that sort of area. So we played a game there. So that's your sort of first taste and look, it's it's super exciting. You know, you get to meet the players, you know, greats of the game, Bernie Quinlan, Gary Wilson. Then I got invited in 1980, played in the under-19 grand final. It was incredible at the MEG against Richmond. And then eventually got my first game in 82. As I said, you know, like just absolutely amazing thrill uh, players of the calibre of, of the Fitzroy players. And they were pretty successful in those early yeah. 80s. I had some really, really talented yeah, Gary Wilson was as good a player as I ever played with, and so was Bernie Quinlan. You know, Bernie Quinlan, Brown medalist, kicked 100 goals at full forward as well, which is just an incredible feat. And so it was, it was amazing. And the other thing is you all you always went down with your mates. So players that I played with at Beverly Hills, players I played against at Donny East and Donny Heights and clubs like that. So you'd go down there. So you already had a connection with some of the players that you were about to play with, which was really important as well. 
Yeah, and it's, I think it's good that you mentioned the success there because I think as the le- the legacy of Fitzroy maybe doesn't highlight that enough, but it absolutely wasn't. Um, the legacy isn't what I guess we saw towards the end there. Um, you made the move to Sydney. Now, obviously, that came at a time where the success maybe dried up a little bit and things were starting to change. Fitzroy, can you take us into maybe the decision-making there a little bit and kind of what, what the uh, key factors were in you making the move up? Yeah, look, yes, you said it was a very, very different club. You know, we'd lost over the years... Yeah, Gary Pert, John Blakey, yeah, Alistair Lynch the year before, Matty Armstrong, you know, and really there was probably myself, I think Jimmy Wind, Ross Lyon. So, you know, they were the the players that I'd sort of grew up. Most of the other players had left or retired or, you know, so a lot of the team was made up of players from other clubs or, you know, more recent type players. So I, I remember when I got to the end of 1994 and, yeah, it's it always frustrating because the club, unfortunately, didn't have a lot of money. You were always late on the payments. But, yeah, to be fair, they always paid you, which was great. And then I decided, look, you know, it was really tough and I didn't really want to leave. But, um, yeah, it was just so hard to, to to keep it going, keep grinding away year after year. And originally I wanted to go to Adelaide and play. I had some really good mates over there, but Adelaide couldn't do a deal with Fitzroy at all because no one from Adelaide would go and play at Fitzroy because it was, it was really teetering on the edge. Yeah, at the end of 94. And then I, I was talking to, to Sydney as well. Ronnie Joseph was amazing. He was fantastic. They were trying to get Tony Lockett myself, but he didn't really think it was fair on me at 31 just to come up by myself. So he had a plan. If I can get Plugger, I really want you to come. And then it turned out, as we know, Plugger uh, got traded and then they drafted me in the, the preseason draft, which I which I knew I was going to go up. They had pick one. Um, so really, once the draft was over, once the plugger there, I made the decision. It was a really hard decision in, in some way because I didn't want to leave Fitzroy. I wanted to be a one-club player. But in another way, you know, we know how Fitzroy, you know, continued for another couple of years, but just petered out. And it was really frustrating at that particular time. Yeah, absolutely. How do you split your allegiance then, obviously, being Fitzroy from a young age, as you said, with the zones and then moving to Sydney maybe a tad reluctantly, but then obviously your coaching legacy that you left at the Swans and all the time you spent there. How do you split your allegiances between, it's obviously Fitzroy being sort of Brisbane now, and where do your allegiances maybe sit? Look, it's probably more relationships. Obviously, from a club point of view, given Sydney is still the club that I coached, you know, um, and Johnny Longmire coached with me. Um, you know, Jared McVeigh's there. Benny Matthews is there, you know, as coaches. So there's still a really strong connection with with that football club because that's the same club. The connection to Fitzroy Brisbane Lions probably comes more through the players that I played with and still connected with. Scotty Clayton, Matty Rendell, Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon, Gary Wilson, you know, all those guys from that era. Then, then the Gary Purd and John Blakey and, you know, Alistair Lynch, you know, those guys. And Lynch is probably my main connection to Brisbane Lions. I remember I was really fortunate working for Channel 7 when Brisbane won their first premiership. Um, and I was on the, the boundary line, got on the field, and Lynch had been through some really tough times with chronic fatigue. So it was really exciting to see him, um, you know, win the premiership. But I also think Brisbane have done an amazing job to continue that connection. So I've been to a couple of Brisbane functions, um, which has been amazing. So, yeah. and then as, you, as we'll probably talk about coaching Melbourne. So when you're, yeah. you know, when you're actually at a club, you know, when I'm coaching Melbourne, I'm not thinking too much about Fitzroy or Brisbane Lions or Sydney. You know, yeah. now that I'm sort of out, yeah, it's a bit different and, um, but yeah, now living in Hawaii is a bit different as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then before we move on to your illustrious coaching career, I saw, I was going to be a research and saw that you'd been reported once for abusive language. What, do you know what you said? 
I actually think I don't know for a fact, but I think I, when I went to the tribunal, I got I got I did get found not guilty, but I actually think the umpire apologised at, at the tribunal. So I, I'll I'll run with that story anyway. But I did I did get off. <laughs> yeah, lovely, lovely. Now on to your coaching uh, tenure at the Swans. We'll start there. Um, you stepped up as an interim coach. It seems to be the way many get into it. But you came in at a time, obviously, Rocket had departed and the side was in a bit of trouble. Terry Wallace seemed like the incumbent. It seemed like that was just the natural fit. Can you maybe take us into your appointment as interim, but then also kind of your application on the fly when the, the noise around Terry Wallace was so loud at that point and seemed like an impending appointment for him? Yeah, look, it was a really strange time. I and mean, we, we played Geelong, and I remember being probably three goals up with about 10 minutes to go. And then they kicked four or five goals in the last you know, 10 minutes and we end up losing. And, and that's when it seemed to snowball. Like, you know, before we got in the rooms, the board was in the room and then I could sort of sense things were going to turn a bit ugly because, and probably Rocket, to be fair, who's an amazing coach, probably just stayed one year too long. And, and you could just sense the mood in that, in that final year. But honestly, no one really knew what was happening. We had a buy the following week. I was sitting in my office on the Monday and I got a phone call. I think Stephen Quartermain rang me from Channel 10 and said, oh, Ruzi, you got a comment about Rodney giving it away. I'm like, mate, I have no idea what you're talking about. Then Johnny Blakey rang me about 30 minutes later and said, oh, mate, what's happening with Rocket? I heard he was going to give it away. And I'm, I said, Johnny, I have no idea what you're talking about. And his office was next to mine. So I jumped out of my chair, walked into his... I said, mate, I've just had two phone calls telling me you're going to give it away. He said, yeah. So that's how I found out, yeah, through the, the media and, and yeah. another mate. And, so we gave it away. The next couple of days were a bit of a blur for everyone, but we did have a buy. So we had a bit of time up our sleeves, talked a bit about would we rotate the coaching gear and the club said to me, no, we want you to take it. Um, and then I had to make the decision. I really hadn't decided whether I wanted to be a senior coach or not because I didn't really need to, to be honest. Yeah. And then it was a case, do you want to want it? And it was also putting your job on the line, really, with no a guarantee you're going to get the job. And I, I sort of asked for a longer term. I said, no, nah, we want to. So it was a bit of a, a risk. And then we won six games and, and lost four. And then towards the end of the year, the, the Terry Wallace thing picked up steam and everyone said, he's got the job, got the job, got the job. And then next thing I know, I had to present to the board. And then I did a four hour presentation to the board and, um, and got the job. And so the, the rest of obviously is history, but yeah, it was a bit of an unusual period really. Yeah, no doubt. Can you maybe take us into what those presentations, obviously they may have changed from your, from when you first did it back then to now, but what those presentations might look like to the fan that maybe doesn't get the opportunity to be on that inner sanctum? Yeah, 100%. It was, it, it was sort of funny and you're sort of trying to present really your vision for the footy club. So everything from, you know, the how you want the club to act off the field, um, the game plan obviously is a big part. Of it. But probably the one thing I did, which... I, th I think was was really important was 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 rated the Brisbane Lions premiership team actually just purely rated them yeah and then rated us against them and had a score so a score about this is how far behind we are yeah then I went into the team and said look I think we can get yeah Brett Kirk and Jude Bolton and Nick Fosdyke I think we can get them up from I can't remember the ratings but they might have been fives and sixes but I said look I think we can get them up to sevens eights and nines you know if we so I literally just went through yeah. that as well um, a lot of the other stuff is, is fairly generic in terms of, you know, well, I think my last page was a bit of a leap of faith. I will deliver a premiership within three years or something, <laughs> something like that. And it turned out to be true. So um, that was, that was quite, that was quite funny, but that's sort of your selling slide yeah. where you go, Oh, this is what I'm going to do. You're trying to sell it at that stage. But yeah, so it's probably not, it's probably not a lot different to what most people would think it would be to be perfectly frank, but that was one thing that I think 
that I did that probably helped give uh, some clarity to the board because when you're rating, yeah, you know, Michael Voss, yeah, as a nine, and they can see that, you know, Ackermanis and Black and Lynch and you know um, Lepich and all that sort of stuff. So you can, yeah, you know, they can then visualize, gee, yeah, yeah, they are nines. You know, I think there was a couple of tens that they might have had Vossi at a ten. And yeah, so the, then they can visualize exactly what the premiership team looks like. Then you're just putting scores against it. And again, then we can say, well, look, I think we can get these players up. So it gives them a really good perspective of, of where you want to put your time in. And, and obviously development of those players, our players were, were really important part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as you said, you got that premiership in three years. Now we will touch on that. I mean, that and that rivalry with West Coast, which I think thinking back to my childhood, it was probably the defining rivalry of my my childhood. I remember all those games on Saturday nights, Channel 10, down here in Victoria and always classics. How did you prepare, A, for Judd Cox, Kirk Cousins? Because obviously your midfield had its own attributes, but probably wasn't as glamorous as the West Coast midfield. And then how did you prepare for the games? Because they were always a kick, seven points. It was about no more than that for about three years. Did you kind of start preparing going like, we know this is going to be within a kick. Here's how we get this done. Yeah, I think the big thing is, like, we didn't prepare that differently to... The good teams tend to maybe pick two or three things of the opposition, yeah, because you can't change everything. And, and part of our philosophy was we had some really disciplined players that could win their own ball and, you know, could win one-on-one contests. You know, Brett Kirk, Jared Crouch, Benny Matthews, guys like that. And we just happened to match up pretty well against really talented team because our philosophy was slightly different. Although I wish it was very much a one-on-one coach and we were one-on-one. We wanted to play a similar style. They probably just had a bit more talent in the pure sense of the word talent. Yeah. But the fact that we wanted to go head to head with them and they wanted to go head with head with us just meant that they were really good one-on-one matchups and really good contests and typically came down to yeah, one or two moments in games. And I think it was just the style that you wanted to play and the style that I wanted to play were, were quite similar, but different teams and slightly different ways of going about it. But they just lent themselves to amazing, amazing contests, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and you mentioned that one-on-one. I think it's probably something we wouldn't see much of today. You obviously, I think Luke Abbott spent a bit of time with that. You go into Benny Cousins, Goods and Judd had their little running battle yeah. at times. They always seem to be the same matchups. And I don't think we just wouldn't say today. So I think it's a rivalry that was probably one of the last ones, that, last one of those rivalries that was so one-on-one based and then obviously culminated in two of the best grand finals we've seen, definitely this side of 2000, touching on 05, which is probably the easier of the two to touch on for yourself. Um, at what point in that game, because obviously an absolute classic, at what point do you kind of put the headset down and go, all right, it's, I can't do anything here? Because it was, wasn't too much further away from two or three kicks for most of that second half. And yeah, at what point do you kind of put the hands down and go, it's, it's up to them? I mean, to be honest, once, once the game was, you, you identified the game was being played the way it was, I suspect both coaches were just backing their system in. Yeah spoke about on the Friday night, you know, this was no disrespect to West Coast. I just said, guys, if we can do it, you know, for 120 minutes, we can win. You know, we, yeah. we, we will win. And I'm sure Wusha would have said the same thing. And to, so to your, the point was that probably wasn't a lot of coaching because the game was going as we wanted it to. And I suspect John would have been the same. I mean, 
just happened to be going the way. And then, yeah, they came back and got in front and then Hawley kicked the goal. And then, yeah, I mean, Buchanan kicked the goal the way we would kick goals and the way yeah. they would kick goals. And then the last sort of, so, so in terms of coaching, the most of the coaching was done through the year and through the week yeah. and through the preparation. And then it was up to the team that, that carried it out for the longer. And it just happened. We were, yeah, in that game, we were 30 seconds, you know, better than West Coast and the year after West Coast were 30 seconds better than us, you know, so that's that. But I think the coaching probably in a sense, you know, really stopped probably at half time. And really the more was just keep doing what we, what we need to do. And, and three quarter time was the same guys with, this is going exactly the way we want to go. We just need to do it for, for longer than the other team. Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously speaking about 30 seconds that you were better than them, obviously, probably the five seconds that define that grand final and probably that team is Leo Barry's mark. How, how did you see that? Because obviously your view would be completely different to any of ours watching TV or those who might've been lucky enough to beat the grand. But what was your view? Of, like, did you see Leo coming? Did you, did you think he was a chance to get there or what were you looking at? No, to be honest, I, I we, we sort of get a countdown clock, but we, we don't really know how much time was left. And then when he kicked it in and then Coxie marked it, I, I looked down the other end of the ground. I've gone, oh, well, there can't be much time to go. This is just up to completely up to the players now. And then one of the coaches in the box yelled out, oh, Leo's marked it. And then we didn't actually hear the siren. And someone yeah. else yelled out, the siren's gone. And we're like, oh, we've won, you know, sort of thing. So I actually didn't see the mark until later on um, the game sort of thing. So, And that's probably one of those moments where you just go, well, I'm, I'm a spectator, yeah. you know, probably like everyone else in a grandstand and i'm like well i can't even watch what's going to happen because it's really completely in the lap of the gods and you know but leo i think it typified leo and yeah as a player you know again when we talked about that rivalry every player was authentic and true to themselves that rivalry a juddy was juddy good like they didn't change we didn't and leo went for the mark you know that was that was leo you know it wasn't he wasn't going to get up there and spoil the ball he was going to mark the ball you know so even i think credit to, to both coaching departments that players felt confident in those games to be able to play the way that play to their strengths you know and leo, the fact that leo went for the mark and if you look at the yeah you know, the scrum if you had a punch yeah. they probably would have won yeah because they, they at the fall of the ball sort of thing so um yeah it was amazing so the screaming in the box was leo's marked it and then Siren's gone was yeah pretty exciting then, and and then following that you obviously make your way down to the podium and what's become a pretty another iconic moment and that is you hold the cup up and after breaking such a long drought the here it is is that something you had pre-planned or is it something you thought about in the mirror the night before? I, I remember watching Mark Williams the year before and I love Chocker he's a fantastic guy and I, but when he walked down he had his high and he and he had a crack at the the, the major sponsor. I did learn from that, and I, and I and I thought to myself, "Gee, I hope Choco enjoyed it. I hope I hope he." And because I remember that moment, I remember on the Friday night thinking, "Look, win, lose, or draw, I want to be as composed as humble." The biggest part was being present. I just wanted to be present, and because we we celebrated in the box, I walked down through the crowd, which I'm glad we won it. When you could walk through the crowd yeah. and not go down the elevator and out, which was amazing. I remember all the people, the Swans fans. I remember walking on the ground, seeing ex-past players, people had put money in, you know, you know, that during that period of, of, of the guys losing all that money and then two years to become such a big thing. And then I think putting everything together in that final moment was, you know, for, that's where it came out of really. But if, I, I think if I hadn't have thought through just being present and enjoying it if we win and being humble if we lose or, or, or whatever, 
then I probably wouldn't have had the, the presence of mind to do all the things that I did, you know, getting to that moment and then even saying what I said, but I hadn't rehearsed that line. No. Yeah. No, fair enough. As I said, absolutely iconic. I'm pretty sure it was on the uh, video game the next year. So it just got a rerun in my household pretty ritually. Um, then after obviously the, your brand of footy is probably something that or is something that came under question at that time, namely from Andrew Demetrio, who didn't love the way you guys went about it defensively. I mean, how, how does that, how did that sit with you at the time? And how does it sit with you even now a bit further on that the, the head of the league maybe came out and wasn't thrilled with the way you guys were playing the game? And where do you think maybe it'd sit now if Gil had said that this year about uh, Geelong or anyone? I thought it was strange. Like at the time, I thought it was really bizarre. You know, we were, we were the only team in Sydney and we were promoting the game. And then all of a sudden you had the CEO of the AFL. Like it was, I always say this, I make the analogy. Imagine if the CEO of Coca-Cola came out and said, oh, look, I wouldn't be drinking Coca-Cola in New South Wales. You know, go and drink Pepsi. I was surprised that no one from the uh, commission had said anything. You know, that, that was probably the biggest thing. But it was probably more of an issue in Melbourne than it was... I remember being on the main sports show that week and, and the commentator said to me, Rosie, what did he mean by ugly footy? Like, because you've got to remember, Sydney is a very much a rugby league, rugby union, a very combative town, you know, very, and we were a very one-on-one team. Yeah, probably the biggest misconception about us as a team was that we flooded back all the time. You know, we actually played one-on-one football, you know, which... You win a contest, you, you get it forward. There'll be another one-on-one contest, et cetera, et cetera. So we, I think we played a really pure game of football. It's just that we didn't, you know, we probably just didn't have the talent of Judd and Cousins and Kerr and, and some of the other players and some of the other teams that have won premierships. You know, our midfield to, I think it was Kirk, he said, where Cortina's playing against Ferraris, you know, when we played against the West Coast Eagles. They were honest. We, they, they knew exactly what they could do and what they couldn't do. And I think that was our greatest strength. Yeah, their ability to leave their egos in their locker and ability to play for each other and play for the team. So at the time, I just thought it was a really strange thing to say. When I look back on it, yeah, it, it didn't really make much difference because we won the premiership in the same year that he said it, basically. So it just shows what nonsense it was when he when he said it. And, and also, I said, look, I knew that Andrew couldn't coach the Swans just as I couldn't run the AFL. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just a ridiculous thing to say. Did you and Andrew have any conversations after after those comments, maybe perhaps after the grand final or any dialogue about those comments? Well, the irony was they, they wanted me to speak at a conference. And I said to Andrew, oh, I said, man, I'm, why would I speak at a conference for the AFL if they don't respect what we do? So I pulled out of the conference. Um, but to be fair to, to, to Andrew, like when we got the grand final, he was fine. I was fine. We never really had words about it. We had a discussion around it, you know, and, um, and then he rang me when the Melbourne job came up and just sort of said, look, yeah, we'd love to have you back in the league. It was more just a, a conversation. Yeah. So look, it, it is what it is. And I don't think any of us, either of us really think too much about it now, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as you said, you got the, the last laugh per se, holding the trophy up on that day. Um, moving over to the 06, uh, the sequel, as Anthony Hudson called it, um, a cracking game in of itself. Personally, I think the 05 game, maybe a touch better. But how, at what point could you maybe accept um, just how good the the theatre of the two games was and the way it kind of worked out? Was there a point where you were able to go, actually, that was unbelievable and both sides probably got the flag they deserved? Or does it still maybe hurt too much to to let West Coast have that? No, I think immediately, when I say immediately, within the within the rivalry, I think there was definitely a recognition. And I don't know, I've never spoken to John about it. 
there's definitely a recognition that these are amazing games. You know, I think when even when you're coaching or playing, you you do you do get a sense of the game, you know, and, and how good they are. And I think as much as we would have wanted to win two and they would have wanted to win two, I mean, to do the rivalry justice, it probably needed a one-one finish, really. You know, and I think I think there was a bit of noise at the end of 2005 that our oh, Swans were lucky, they didn't have any injuries, you know, all that sort of stuff. And ironically, that dissipated completely after 06. I think we got we got respect after 06 because people finally said, wow, this is a great team. This this Sydney Swans team is a great team. And they've done it over a long period of time now. Even though we lost 06, I think we got an enormous amount of respect out of going back-to-back. Because we know how hard it is to get back-to-back yeah. grand finals, let alone back-to-back premierships. So we, we gained a lot of respect again. And and I think also the second half, because the first half, they were flying. Yeah. You know, you're great here was Juddy and Cousins and Kerr just going nuts. And they were going nuts in the first half. And I think we were four or five goals down yeah. at half time. So credit to our players to get back to the way we played. And I mean, the irony of it is they probably could should have won in 05 because the ball was in their forward line. The ball was in our forward line in 06. So either way you look yeah. at it, I think that was a fair result for the rivalry. Yeah, absolutely. I think I remember watching that. I think the start of last quarter when Barry Hall marks, handles to Goodsy and goals. Oh, God, like yeah. that—that's still probably the defining moment of that game for me. Because I remember just saying that and thinking, "Oh, they're—they're they're home now." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so then moving to 07, there was an, a time where you had to drop Barry Hall. Um, probably not an envious task for anyone to have to tell me, Baz, that he's not in the side. Can you take us into maybe what that discussion looked like and and how Barry maybe received that news? Obviously, being such a, a proud competitor himself, he probably wasn't too thrilled. Yeah, I mean, the timeline's a little bit blurry now, but I know there was a time there we we stood him down because he wasn't he wasn't yep. feeling that well, and, and and it was more around how do we support Barry, and then as it moved on to yeah, I can't remember what the year he left was it oh oh nine, you know when when, yeah, when he left oh nine, you know look it was look it was every way you cut it, I mean Hawley was our captain. Yeah, in the grand final day and held up the cup. So it was really sad the way that he had to leave. You know, I don't hold, I don't, you know, look back at that fondly at all. You know, I think we all could have handled it better. Um, I wish he had it continued with the Swans, but I'm equally glad that he that he went to the dogs and you know and maintained a really strong reputation and came out of that period of his career really well. So yeah, it, it's difficult when you when you're such an important player. You're trying to support, but you're also mindful of the footy club and and discipline and how we want to represent ourselves and the things that we all went through. Yeah, we could have all done things better, but the reality is, um, you know, he left. He 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 resigned from the footy club at 2009 based on his press comments and when he came to me and went and played for the Dogs, which I think was fantastic and had some success at the Dogs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how was your relationship with with Barry after after probably after he left? Did it take some time? We needed a cooling off period, or we did we guys in communication? Maybe when he's at the dogs, what was that kind of relationship? Well, when like? you go to another club, whether it's me, yeah, coaching Melbourne and having coached Sydney, you really don't have a lot of interaction with your old club. So, look, I was glad I got to work with him at Fox. We did some work at Fox Footy together. That was good. Um, yeah, as I said, we could have both handled things differently and, and much better. Um, but hopefully he looks back on his time at Sydney fondly. We've spoken a lot since. Um, you know, I, I certainly love Barry Hall. I can I speak highly of him. We wouldn't have won a premiership without him. I wouldn't have achieved the goals that I've achieved without him. Um, and I'm glad that our paths crossed. And I'm glad that you know, I was able to meet him and coach him and and um, 
what he would say about me, I'm not 100% certain, but I can, I, all I can do is speak highly about Barry and, and my, most of my time together with him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now moving on to your time at Melbourne. Um, obviously, you picked up a football club at what, just off the back of probably its lowest ever at that point. How big a challenge did you foresee that as? And what was one of the driving kind of factors behind you taking on that role? Yeah, look, I think to Peter Jackson's credit and the meetings I had with Peter, he he was brutally honest. You know, he, he didn't sugarcoat it. You know, they come off at two wins and 20 losses. They come off five or six. Yeah, so he, I think the fact that he was so honest, yeah, was was really important. Um, There's a really a lot of stages I went through. One of the main ones was meeting with the leadership group and and getting their impression of, of how they saw the footy club and how much responsibility they would took. Uh, another st- Another part of it was David Misson, who was my fitness guy at Sydney. He was there. Glenn Bartlett, um, as the the chairman, was he he got on. I got on really well with him from day one. Todd Viney was there. Josh Marnie, uh, Jay Rawlings, who I knew, the fact that I could bring coaches in. Um, so there's a lot of factors that took place. A lot of things just happened all line. Yeah, that I eventually agreed to to do the job. Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously, kind of what you did, you kind of laid the groundwork. Obviously, you're. A lot of the players that we saw thrive in that 2021 season that and the scene developing the absolute superstars of competition came in at your time. Were there any of those players that, like, when you got them, you thought, oh, I've got some real raw talent that could be absolutely anything? Any players that, obviously, the guys like Petrarca and Oliver and even Gorn, at that time, we, we know where they were inklings of how good they could be. But were there maybe any that perhaps would have taken us by surprise that you always had a feeling we're, we're going to make it? Yeah, it was a fascinating time. You know, there's so much that we had to do. And, you know, unfortunately, some, it's probably more the players that didn't make it. That was probably my, the, the biggest disappointment because, you know, that, your habits are formed, you know, when you come to a footy club at 18 and then, you know, typically over that four or five year period, it's really, you know, I really felt for Jack Grimes and Jack Trengove, who were the two captains. They, they were just outstanding people. Yeah. But, yeah, I think the, the club, you know, betrayed them in a sense and betrayed the young players. You know, when they first arrived, Jack Watts was super talented, but he he did well under me, but didn't do that well under Goody and then obviously left. Nathan Jones is one I would love to have seen. Yeah, you know, I've got so much respect for Nathan. You know, the fact that he didn't play in that grand final, I felt, yeah. and I, I'm not in the inner sanctums, I, I don't have it, I don't know, but I felt, I think there was an injury going into the prelim and I felt that he could have been brought into that team. Now that's yeah. saying it from outside, you know, I, I felt that he could have been brought into the team, yeah. uh, but the players that did last, you know, Maxi Gorn was incredibly intelligent and worked really hard, you know, which was, which was amazing. Nev Jetta was another one that missed out, which I, I've got so much time for Nev Jetta. And then the, yeah, the young talent that was there, Salem, Petrarca, you know, Brayshaw, Oliver, yeah, they were all early draft picks and really talented. So, yeah, look, it was, it was just great to see them get to where they want eventually got to. Because I knew, you know, people that, that followed the club then knew how bad it was, you know. Yeah. And we probably forget now when, you know, it's a bit like Hawthorne when Clarko won four premierships. You forget what the club was like when Clarko took the club. <laughs> you know, and I talk about that a lot. You know, Clarko did an amazing job lifting that club up and then getting the premierships. I think we forget how bad Melbourne was. You yeah. know, and the work that was done by so many people, including some of the guys that didn't make it, um, to get the club to where it was, you know, which was it's just so pleasing to see them win the premiership. Yeah, absolutely. And before we move on a bit in Melbourne, there's you mentioned those players that didn't make it. Now, one of those would be a friend of mine, Jack Fitzpatrick. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask what your your thoughts on Big Fitz were and your time with him. Mate, I, the best story, and I never I never told this story, but Maxi Gorn let the cat out of the bag. And I know Fitz, you I know Fitzy reckons it was a right footer, but I'm sure it was a left footer that he kicked it. 
but it was one of the best, it was one of the great moments and Max, so it was our first training session and we, yeah, we strutted across, we had a lot of injuries. So we started with about 12 players and I remember thinking, George, there's George Stone, Ben Matthews, um, Daniel McPherson, Brett Allison, myself and Jade. And obviously I'd, I'd brought five of them or whatever it was from, from Sydney. And I remember walking across going, first training says, mate, Georgie, what are we going to do? And he goes, mate, we're going to have to do lane work. I go, lane work? They're paying me a fortune. I'm going to come up with lane work. So anyway, it was literally the first training session. So we're just looking out, hanging out. It was 12 blokes training. First kick, I think it was Rowan Bale, kicked it to Pitsy, and it just went straight through his hands. And he's got a fairly big snoz, as you know. And it just whacked him, whacked him in the nose. And I looked over at George and I've gone, geez, that's not a great, it's literally first kick. I said, that's not a great start. Anyway, so Fitzy picks it up. I think he said he reckons it's a right foot. I reckon he kicked on his left foot. He picked it up, kicked it, and it let dead set snick the outside of his boot and it rolled three metres sideways. And I've looked at George again. He's looked at me. Anyway, at the end of the drill, he came up to me, he goes, mate, how bad must the players have been that got the ass? <laughs> but I think it, it's interesting because when I look at Fitzy, and again, I, I find it hard sometimes to talk about Melbourne because I don't like to be critical of yeah. what happened before. But there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of players that I would love to have coached when they first arrived at the club. Yeah. And Fitzy was one of them. I would have loved to have got him when he first arrived. Yeah, because he's... It's, as you would know, as a mate, like really quick prototype size, yeah, you know, could catch it, you know, things like that. You know, some of the, some of the attributes, and when I look at some of the players that didn't make it, again, I really do wish that I, I'd coach them and with that group, with George and Benny and 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 that whole coaching group, um, because he did he, he did have talent, but you know, sometimes those the bad habits and and things that you you. You know, it's hard to compensate with that, you know, after a while. And then the team was, you know, obviously pretty bad and we had a lot of things to, to change sort of thing. There's probably one other story he probably told you when he handballed the ball through the goal line at the MCG, which was pretty funny as well. Yeah, that that's single-handedly probably the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I made sure when um when he first started working with me, I made sure I let him know that I had that footage on standby. He was um he was telling me not too long ago a story. I think you played Port Adelaide up at the top end. And um, yeah, you had him slated for Paddy Ryder for the week and he had himself ready and Paddy was a late withdrawal. And I think he went to centre-half and he lined up on Angus Monfries for the first half of that game. And he still laments that because Angus ran him ragged um, and he he's still fuming about that, the fact that he had to go play on Angus Monfries um, and mock him kick. I think he could have three and a half before you took him off him, he says. So, <laughs> um, uh, Yeah, good stories. Really. We, had, yeah, we had some... There's some tough times, but I think yeah. hopefully the players would say that we still were able to enjoy ourselves whilst learning the play and standards. And, you know, hopefully there's some good relationships being built as well. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And then staying with Melbourne, obviously the ultimate success comes. How how proud were you of that? Obviously, you played a big part in laying the foundations. I spoke to Don Tyson not too long ago and asked him a similar question. And he, he said he, he felt a bit of pride in knowing he was part of that building the foundations and he obviously played in that prelim against West Coast, um, I think in Goody's first year. And what sense of pride do you take in in watching a bunch of guys that you worked with and helped mould ultimately reach the ultimate success? Oh uh, yeah, look, I, we, obviously due to the pandemic was in it was in um Western Australia. So I remember just sitting in my place watching it and the siren went and the feel feeling the, the feeling of contentment was just hit me straight away. You know, it was really like 
this is amazing. This is why Peter Jackson asked me to come. This is why I brought, you know, the, the coaches that sacrificed, you know, they were really good clubs. Georgie Stone came. And as I said, the other guys had opportunities elsewhere and they backed me in and we backed each other in and an amazing sense of fulfillment, you know, seeing what the, the fans had gone through um, as we, we've already talked about some of the players. Yeah, it was incredible just to see the players win the premiership and the whole club be able to celebrate and knowing yeah. as Dom said, like, you know, Bernie Vince, Daniel Cross, guys that would come to the club, you know, at that time, Dom Tyson, you know, honestly, the, the, for them to come to a two-win team, it was enormous. To get Dom, to get um, Crossy, to get uh, Bernie Vince and guys like that was just unbelievable. It was enormous to get those. And there were so many players. And it was really strategic, you know, what we tried to do in those early days. And Jason Taylor and Todd Viney, did an amazing job of assembling and reassembling and getting rid of players and bringing players in. And, you know, it was incredible effort from everyone at the footy club. So to be able to do that um, and win the premiership was, was, yes, was, was amazing. It was really, really good. Yeah. I think they were, they were well, deserving premier, no doubt, but they were probably as good a premier as we've seen for a long time. They've probably got a few more left, left to win as well. Um, Simon Goodwin, as you mentioned, played a big part in that, obviously as head coach, he, you worked as closely with him as anyone in his development as a coach. Uh, what are some, what are some of his strengths that maybe you saw early on and, and what was kind of your working relationship like? What were the kind of things that, you know, he had to learn that he maybe got, but yeah, what were the things mainly that he was really, really good at that you could identify early on? I mean, probably one of the things we wanted to do was get continuity. We, I mean, for a club that didn't have continuity, and that was probably Peter, when I spoke to Peter and, and Glenn around the succession plan, yeah, we really spoke about we want the players to know that the game plan is not going to change dramatically. The philosophies aren't going to change dramatically. But equally, if it does change a bit, then at least the coach is there for a couple of years and can build really strong relationships. Um, probably some of the things I really admired Adelaide, you know, we'd really had trouble beating Adelaide at Sydney. Neil Craig was a real proponent of, of that cultural leadership and, and structure and all those sorts of things. I, I really had a lot of time for Craig and Craig, he was really unlucky, you know, like, yeah, yeah, he, he could have easily been a premiership coach. You know, they had, they seemed to do really well against West coast as, as we did and West coast had did well against us. We could, we struggled to beat Adelaide. Um, so we just happened to play, um, West Coast in the finals and West Coast played Adelaide in, I think, both prelim finals from memory. Um, so he, I, I had enormous time and then I thought Goody's time at Essendon was really important, you know, for him and his learning process, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was more similar philosophies, um, but the continuity, just trying to get continuity. The players knew who was going to be coaching and and then being having him for two years with while I was there, building the relationships, building relationship with players, and then picking up on yeah. what we we started together, and then just building towards what what eventually he was able to achieve was a premiership. Did he have his fingerprints over that game plan? Obviously, because if he's the one that's going to be taking it over once you depart and you want to continue, did he have a big say in what that game plan looked like when you were still head coach? We probably weren't dramatically different, probably more from a defensive standpoint. So I think his last year, he took more responsibility in, in the strategic stuff around game plans and coached more pre-season, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, there was certainly a build-up and a transition pre-me handing yeah. over to him. And there had to be. There was the same with yeah. John Longmire as well, really. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've seen a few of those succession wins maybe not go as well, but I think the two that you've been involved in ultimately reached the, the ultimate success. So I think it's obviously a credit to how you've handled those situations. Um, you obviously had a gap between your time at Sydney and arriving at Melbourne. Now, Ross Lyons, I mean, you mentioned earlier on in our chat, he's obviously coming back into the Saints from a gap after his time at Freo. What are some of the challenges that you noticed in that time that, you, that Ross might face now, having been out of the game for a little bit and then coming back in the, into the hot seat? Yeah, I, I think the game changes relatively quick, quickly, but it doesn't. I mean, and I want to make it clear. But yes, contested ball is still huge. Despite sometimes what the media say, the best defensive teams yeah. win premierships. You know, some, so I think, I think with Ross... He, he will concentrate on those things that haven't changed. And then he will rely on, you know, the other coaches, you know, to, to sort of say, look, let's, let's tweak that stoppage. You know, ball movement might be slightly different. You know, the, the, the man on the mark, kick-ins, all those sorts of things. And that's when you're just relying on the coaches, which in effect you do anyway. The other thing that hasn't changed is culture. You know, you, you need good people. You need really strong standards if you want to be. I talk about behavioural-based teams or cultural-based teams. You know, you want to be a behavioural-based team, then you get your systems in place. And he's really strong on that. You know, so I would say 90% of what Ross will do will be the same as what he did at Fremail, and yeah. then 10% to 15%. Yeah, he'll just get help by Lenny Hayes and, and some of the coaches that are already there and some that he will bring in. But, but look, I think Carlton made a mistake in not hiring. I think Essendon made a mistake in not hiring him. But I understand clubs have to go through processes, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, he's an elite coach. Look at his coaching record. Um, the ball bounces one way. <laughs> Instead of the other way, he wins a premiership. That's how fine. Leo Barry drops that mark. I'm not a premiership coach. Yeah. Yeah, the ball bounces up to, I think it was it was um, Milne. Yeah. ball bounces up to Milne. Rossi Lyons, a premiership coach. I'm not a premiership coach. That's how close he is. And I think he's an exceptional coach and he'll do an exceptional job. Yeah, I think that was going to be the next question is what kind of job you think you'd do there? You said Carlton and Essendon maybe made mistakes, not getting him. Like, so are you, you're that convinced that he's like he, like he doesn't need a process? Because that's probably one of the queries around Ross is that he didn't really want to go through one of those processes. Um, and you'd know him probably better than a lot of people having worked with him and then worked against him as an opposition coach. Um, can you take us into what gives you a bit of that belief that that it, he was the right man for, for the Essendon Carlton and then ultimately St Kilda jobs? Well, the process for Ross is 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 already been done. He's already been through the process. Yeah. That's what I don't understand. Now, you know, I can sort of understand if you sort of if you've got Clarko versus Ross and you're Carlton and you say, well, look, you know, you've got to go for. And I'm just we're just using Carlton example. Yeah. And I'm not saying Bossy could be a good coach. So yeah. let's let's put that on the table as well. He, Bossy had a fantastic season, but I think we know what Ross brings. So don't. To, I've been th I've been through it. I've seen guys do powerpoints. Everyone can do a powerpoint. Everyone can talk about the game plan. It's the ability to get it out of your head and the ability to to transition under pressure. Ross's process has been coaching Sydney, sorry, coaching St Kilda and coaching Freo. That's fine. So the process has already been finished for Ross. If you want to stack him up and say, look, Ross, we're going to go through a process. If you're interested at the end of our process, we'd love. We'd love you to come in and we're going to see who we're stacking up against. That, that's fine. But honestly, I, and I've done it myself. It's garbage. It is absolute <laughs> garbage. Yeah. Look, I mean, look at it. Look what Essendon did. Essendon yeah. went through a process, had one conversation with Brad, um, Brad Scott yeah. and gave him the job. You know, so he didn't, he didn't go through a process. 
Yeah. Yeah. So don't, let's let's not get into semantics. Yeah. Yeah. The, the process for Ross Lyon, the process for Scotty, the process for Clarkson is already been done. Then you make some phone calls and then you say, look, what's Ross going to bring? Do we want Ross? No, we want a, we want Michael Boss. We want a young coach. We want someone else's different. Yeah. You know, let's look at Scotty's process let's bring some people in north melbourne what's the legacy yeah what's happened there what's happened post you, you make that determination without even yeah. interviewing to be honest yeah um so all i'm saying is he's incredibly well qualified because the stats tell us that we, yeah. we know that you, you listen to every single player that talks about ross lyon whether it's whether it's fifey mundy rewald goddard hayes and what's your job fundamentally your job is to get the best out of the players yeah. that's your job End, end of story. If you want to break it down to one, getting the best out of your players. I haven't heard, I think Ed Langdon joked about Rossi Lyon, tongue in cheek, yeah. but I haven't heard one player speak ill about their, maybe someone that's been cut, but the great players love playing for, for Ross Lyon. There's, yeah. there's your there's the process. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if St. Kilda fans have got any doubt, they can listen to that, of course, because I think, yeah, it seems like a, a logical appointment, but I think the mention of the Essendon one is a great point. Having they went, they wanted to go through a process, and obviously, yeah, Brad Scott's appointment seemed pretty a pretty quick process if they went through one at all. Now, talking before we wrap up, you obviously had a bit of work with North Melbourne throughout the 2022 season, and also like their season probably didn't go how they would have hoped in a range of ways. Can you, you let us know what that role kind of entailed a little bit and kind of where it ended up at because I remember Ben Amafio described it. I think the quote was difficult at times. Um, do you explain what that relationship was like and then maybe what you kind of learned from what was going on at North before, obviously before David Noble ended up leaving and Clarko coming in? Yeah, look, I think the first year was good because I was working with Nobes and the coaches and things like that. And then at the end of the first year, they didn't want me to work with the football department. And that was Nobes' decision. You know, that we, you know, Ruzi's not here, he's not coming in, et cetera, et cetera. I think my big learning from that is if you, if you if the coach doesn't want you to be there, it becomes really, really difficult. So the second year being this year, you know, I've been working with more the executive team, working with the AFLW. I've loved working with Darren Crocker and Emma Carney and the girls. That's been really fulfilling. But if you're not really embraced, it's really hard. You know, if the club, parts of the club don't want you there, it's it's super hard to, to to make. So I think we made some inroads in the first year, and I think David appreciated me being at games and appreciated the conversation we we're having. But for whatever reason, he made the decision that no, we want to spend money elsewhere. We don't want Rusey in the footy department anymore. Um, and then the rest is, as they say, is history. Yeah, absolutely. If if Clark, do you plan on continuing in a role at North Melbourne next season? No, I, I think it's best for both parties. To be honest, you know, I've enjoyed. And I've learned a lot. It's just reaffirmed my views on leadership and culture and, and all the things that I know and the things that if you don't get right, you're going to be a really bad footy team. And that's what, you know, that's what I've learned at North Melbourne. Fair enough. And not too many before we wrap up now, but also we would have to ask the question, is there ever a possibility that you could, you could re-enter for one club land, but to the hot seat? Could, could, is there a job that could convince you to come back out or a challenge that you might want to tackle, whether it's winning another premiership or rebuilding another team? Is there anything that could convince you to sit in the hot seat again? Uh, if, they bring, if they bring a team in in Waikiki, <laughs> that would be the only, the only chance. I look, I really, when I look back, I look back so fondly on the people that I've, Met starting with the people we mentioned at Fitzroy. I've got some great friends and great connections there. I was really fortunate to, to, to play in a really good era, fortunate to coach a premiership, love my time at Melbourne and learn a lot from that. 
and even the last couple of years I said at North, you know, learning, you know, a lot and reaffirming the things that I that I learned from my time at those three clubs before, um, what what not to do, what to do. Um, but now my passion is, is is elsewhere and more in the leadership space and and yeah, consulting and doing things like that, which I really enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome to hear, Matt. And lastly, before we wrap up, yeah, what is in the future? Then, if it's not footy and it's away from that, what what is in in the future and in twenty twenty three for Paul Roos? Yeah, so I have a leadership company with with three other business partners, and it's called Performance by Design. So we do a lot in the corporate space, a little bit in the sporting space, which is good. Uh, we've got an office in Toronto. We're just opening one in in California. I mean, in the USA, which is fantastic. So yeah, I, I really enjoy that. You know, like taking a lot of the learnings from from sport and sport is truly a high performing environment, you know, and, and it, and it goes, you know, so quickly, you know, and people invest so much time into culture and leadership and people, um, you know, so transporting that into, you know, the, the corporate space and, and having three business partners and other staff, which we're really enjoying doing that and uh, working with corporates has, has been a lot of fun as well. Unbelievable, Matt. Awesome to hear. Well, that's, that's all we've got for you. We can't thank you enough for coming on and having a chat. We really appreciate your time. Oh, mate. Good on you. Lovely to chat to you. Thanks.